Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With us today in the studio is a wonderful person uh, who I'm very much looking forward for all of you to get to meet. But first, we're going to be talking about Anne M. Martin of Babysitter's Club fame, who recently gave one of her first interviews in a while to New York Magazine. And I don't know if she has done this before. As far as I can tell, this is the first time that anyone has mentioned it. But Anne M. Martin is a queer woman. And she has had a lady partner, and she mentioned at the end of it that she felt like she was Mary Ann, which I'm very excited about because I feel like this solidifies my theory that as they grow up, Christy Thomas and uh, Mary Ann Spears. Is it Spears or Spires? I'm just realizing I only ever read it and I never saw it spoken. You can't see something spoken. My producer is shaking her head at me in every direction. The point is, I knew that they were going to fall in love. I knew that Logan was a beard. I knew that Ann M. Martin was gay somehow. And uh, I'm really excited to be vindicated now, 20 years after I've stopped reading The Babysitter's Club. Uh, and, and none of this any longer has direct bearing on my life. But, you know, anyone who grew up in the 80s and 90s and ever babysat has at least a passing familiarity with The Babysitter's Club. And I think for a lot of us, Christy and Marianne were some of the first people who pinged on our radar. And we thought, they seem gay. I hope they are. But I don't know. And now we know because authors are their characters, apparently. And uh, if someone is gay and writes a book, their characters are gay, obviously. So with that, I'm vindicated. Everyone who disagreed with me in junior high is wrong. And you can all just suck an egg. And with that, uh, before we jump into our questions, I wanted to turn you guys on to one of my favorite alternative sources of questions. Because if you're anything like me, you know, before I was Dear Prudence, I read Dear Prudence obsessively. And I love reading other people's advice columns. I love hearing about the kinds of problems that people can have. I find them fascinating and horrifying and exciting. And one of my favorite things to do is check uh, my former business partner, Nicole Cliff's Twitter feed, because she's always posting questions from Reddit slash legal advice and slash relationships. It is perfect. And she recently linked to uh, someone who posted to legal advice who asked, I'm relatively wealthy. I have about half a million dollars in savings and stocks, as well as owning my own home. But looking back on life, maybe I spent too much time at work and not enough time raising my sons properly. We do not get along at all. They are entitled, rude, and haven't made anything of themselves because they expect to inherit everything from me. I've had enough of them, and I want to teach them a lesson after I die. Unfortunately, I've talked to a couple of lawyers, and none of them have agreed to help me, so I'm looking online. I want to create a will, or a couple of wills, so convoluted that my sons have to fight one another to inherit anything. My thoughts so far are that maybe I could prepare two wills and date them on the same day. One would give almost everything to one son, while the other would give almost everything to the other son. I'd also tell one son about the will, but then act really loopy and confused around the other, so he would think that I might not be in a right state of mind. My sons already don't like each other, and I know they would fight each other to the death to get my money. What else can I do to make things as expensive and difficult as possible? I'm in Illinois. 
And that's the end. That's the end of the letter. Just by the way, I'm in Illinois in case that's going to be helpful to anyone who's really excited about the idea of setting up a probably illegal dueling will situation um, in order to just tie up our legal court system for the next 10 years. <laughs> and I also love that, like, this is over half a million dollars. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, this is over the most vast fortune that anyone's ever seen. It's like, you're not even a millionaire, man. Like, this is kind of kind of small, small stakes. I just love it. I love it so petty. I love that it's probably illegal. I love that lawyers have already turned him down like, no, man, I'm not going to help you tie up the court system just because you don't like your kids. And I love just the like beautiful sociopathic lack of self-awareness, not like, hey, my sons hate each other. What can I do either to like remove myself from their drama or to try to be a better father? Like, how can I leave them my money so that they like don't bother each other? Should I leave my money to charity? No, it's just how can I use what I have to ruin their lives from beyond the grave? So with that in mind, um, I want to bring that kind of petty focused energy to our chat. Uh, And I'd like to introduce our guest today. Uh, Our guest today is Rebecca Sanchez. She is a Bay Area native and a massage therapist slash yoga instructor slash non-professional satirist slash friend of mine. And uh, I'm really glad to have her here today. Hi, Rebecca. Hey, Mallory. Um, What do you think of the dueling wills scenario, by the way? Wow, I'm overwhelmed. Um, I really don't have anything to say about it because my personal situations, I pretty much am expecting to get nothing because uh, my mother's identity was stolen a total of three times. She lost everything in the 2008 market crash. My dad is not a good budgeter. So, um, I don't know. It sounds kind of fun. Like, if I were a lawyer, I probably would jump on that, yeah. wanting to help him out. I would I would just encourage him to spend it all on himself. Oh, that's a great idea. Like, you know, it doesn't sound like you're you're dying yet. Like, go all out. Buy a zoo. Right. Or just go to town on one of those catalogs that they have on flights. What are they called? Hammock or Schlemmer? Or Sky Mall. Sky Mall. Sky Mall. I don't know why I went first to Hammock or Schlemmer. That is why definitely... do you even have that in in your brain? <laughs> I think it's like the German Sky Mall. I want to say. Oh wow! I'm that's not a... even more obscure. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but um, yeah, that sounds that sounds great. You could get a lot on Sky Mall. You could get one of those floaties for the pool that also has like a like a boombox attached to it and a little cup holder, so you could just live in a pool. You can get awesome shower accessories to like hang virtually everything, conduct your office from the shower. This you person... can get one of those puffy chairs that resembles vaginal labia, but is actually a chair that you set up in the park and you like hold it up and then fill it with air by swinging it around. And it has I've never pockets heard for of your this. cell phone and your book in the side. That's uh, All of these are better ideas yeah. than setting up mean wills. Um, Rebecca, do you feel ready to solve the world's problems with me today? I think I could do it one person at a time, yeah. All right, let's get started. I'm going to go ahead and read the first letter. It is called Morbid Fascination. I'm liking it already. I am excited. Dear Prudence, my in-laws are sweet people that I get along with, but I'm not especially close with them. For one, they're very religious and we're atheists, but they're also petrified of change. They don't have active social lives. They refuse to fly or embrace technology. They don't have cell phones or access to the Internet, which makes relating to them difficult. For the most part, I can manage to have a pleasant conversation with them, except for one quirk. They are obsessed with death. Their main source of entertainment consists of looking through the obituary section of the Sunday paper to see if they know anyone who has died and attend their funeral. My 70-year-old father-in-law attended the funeral of a high school classmate that he'd never seen again after graduating. They've recently been to some in-laws, in-laws, in-laws funeral. Every time we ask what's new, we get all the details on all the services. 
One time they sent my parents a Christmas card where they wrote a whole paragraph about seeing someone with my parents' last name in the obituaries and how they hoped that it wasn't my father's father. It was not. It was very morose for a Christmas greeting. As far as I can tell, they don't participate in any other activities you'd expect of retirement age people, and this is the only thing they do outside of the house. My partner finds it very difficult to spend time with them and carry on a conversation that doesn't involve someone's grandniece getting diagnosed with skin cancer, but struggles to tell them how unhealthy it is to fixate on the inevitable demise of every acquaintance they've ever met. It takes a real toll on their relationship. Do you think they need some type of intervention, or should we just leave them alone to dwell on whatever seems to make them happy in their old age? First of all, I think I could really relate to these parents because I also read the obituaries. Not so I can see if somebody can die, but to see, like, how they died, how old were they when they died, if there's any details regarding their death, which is usually not. It's really unfortunate that there's not more details in obituaries. Maybe you would be a great daughter-in-law for them. Yeah, I was going to say they could hook me up with these parents because I actually think these people need an agent of sorts. I think like a funeral agent. No, 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 no. Like a book agent. Like I think it'd be great for them to write children's books on death and facing your mortality. Because I know that my mother in her mid 60s is talking more and more about death. And at first I was really pissed about it. And then I just thought, wait, let me just ease into this and hear what she's talking about. This is going to be happening to me, too, as Mm -hmm. I get older. Right. I never thought I'd be that woman talking about, oh, my God, when I get up in the morning, I creak and I and I make crunchy noises and I have to stretch before I can, like, reach for my feet. But now I am one of those people. So I think that it'd be really cool to introduce these in-laws to different uh, rituals around death from around the world and just let them get fully into it. So that mm-hmm. when they get into their house, they have, like, a Dia de los Muertos altar set up. And they have maybe like, maybe they need to take a trip to Guanajuato. There's the Museum of Mummies there where the earth is of such high mineral content that it actually petrifies bodies. So all the poor people that couldn't afford a coffin, they dug them up, put them in these glass containers inside of a museum so you can pay to walk through and look at them. Do you think they could take a train there? Because it says they don't fly. Oh, heck yeah. First of all, they can take a bus Mm -hmm. down to Mexico, Mm -hmm. and the buses in Mexico are nicer than the ones here in this country. That does not surprise me. Our buses here are terrible. You get ham and American cheese on white bread sandwiches in a a small cooler next to your seat, and you get to watch a movie while you're riding on this bus. It's air-conditioned. Can we... Yeah, I we want, totally I want to go on that. this trip. So, like, your advice is just, like, embrace this. I'm embrace with it. I say let them run with it. Yeah. Spend minimal amounts of time with them mm-hmm. probably be a good time to contact them when you're pmsing and you're depressed so they can help you spiral downwards even further and just go there just go there with them don't try and change them don't try and do an intervention with them just write it all the way and I'm, maybe they're going to ask you to stop talking about death eventually i'm actually kind of into this i i i, I wasn't I wasn't sure how I felt about this, but I I think trying to get people to stop talking about death seems like awfully tough, especially if it seems like that's what they're interested in. Like, I think it makes sense. Like, they're old. Everyone they know is dying. They're going to be dying soonish. It's not how I would want to spend my twilight years, but I can certainly understand, like... Me neither. Um... I want to still be on, like, campaign lift my ass until I'm, like, in my 80s. Can Um, I cuss on here? Yes, you can. Please. By all means. But, yeah, I can see how it seems like this is 
kind of their favorite thing. They're like funeral crashers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, which is, is really hilarious. You could kind of ask, like, what's it like to go to people's funerals you don't know really well? How do you get in? What's the food like? I mean, this sounds like it could, you could actually, this sounds like movie script type material. Yeah, this is very Harold and Maude. Exactly. They need to sell their story. They need to have their own column, similar to Dear Prudence, but advising people around death. They mm-hmm. seem to be funeral experts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to be a Beetlejuice kind of scenario. Don't spend every weekend with them, but probably accept the fact that they are going to want to talk a lot about death and funerals. And the best way to handle that is just to say, okay, when we talk, there's going to be a lot of talk about death. And uh, just run And then on a superficial level, when you do go to visit them, it'd be kind of cool to just go ahead and put a lot of white powder on your face, emphasis the lines, and we're all black. So just get into the death sartorial nature of... Yeah, just really, like, play up the ritual of it all. Thank you. That's okay. what I was trying to say. I'm I'm actually really into this. I like this answer. I think that that's probably the best technique. I think if you were to try to have an intervention with your 70-year-old in-laws and say, you talk about death too much, knock it off, maybe they'll just stop talking to you. They'll probably just keep talking about death. I don't think that that's going to be a very effective strategy. Um and I think your plan of, like, carefully controlled conversations, but that allow them to express what they really are interested in, which it sounds like are just funeral going. Take them to the Museum of Death in L.A. Take that bus trip um, that you were talking about. But Take just, them to the Holocaust Museum. Take yeah. them everywhere there's death. These, these are amazing, just death-themed field trips. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to read the next one? Um, sure, I can do that. Of course. Because I so love hearing my own voice. I love it. Your voice is soothing and melodic. Oh, my God. The subject is best friend hates my husband. My best friend, let's call him Steve, is a 30-something gay bachelor, whereas I am married with two kids. We have lots in common, and we spend time together at least twice a week. The problem is my husband. I feel like that part should be highlighted. Steve and my husband were friends for 10 years before I met my husband, and Steve was a groomsman at our wedding. However, as Steve and I became closer friends, he and my husband drifted apart. Also highlighted. Steve and my husband have always been sneaky about each other. Excuse me, snarky about each other. They both have very different personalities and rarely talk to each other. Honestly, I'm not sure how they were ever friends, but they seem to always put me in the middle. For a long time, my husband was jealous of the time I spent with Steve, and the last time we were all together, my husband was very rude to him. While he did apologize, it has caused what seems to be an irreparable rift. My husband mostly refrains from commenting on my relationship with Steve, but Steve always manages to make jokingly snarky comments about my husband. He also talks about how much he hates kids. He doesn't really, he's amazing with my toddler, and how relationships and marriage are stupid. However, when I was recently hospitalized for six weeks, Steve was one of the first people to visit me and came to see me almost every single day. He's helped me through a lot of my depression and has been a really good friend to me. My question is this, is this friendship viable? I love Steve, but I don't love how he talks about my family and my life. I don't judge his choices. I wish he wouldn't judge mine. Whew. There's, I have so many questions about like, I don't want to say you stole your husband's friend, but like clearly the fact that he and your husband were once close enough that your husband asked him to be a groomsman and now they can't talk to each other. Um, Like there's a lot there. Like you stole your husband's friend. Not that that's 
not that you're a bad person or that you did it intentionally, but like clearly Steve shifted from being your husband's very close friend to just your friend. And it does not sound like they have been able to talk about it. Like Mm -hmm. they are just clearly they've caused each other some pain. They feel rejected by each other. They feel misunderstood. And they it sounds like are not able to talk to one another about that. And that's really sad. Hmm. Yeah. I think the reason I said this part should be highlighted was because um, it's interesting when you look at the title, Best Friend Hates My Husband, and then the writer clearly states the problem is my husband, hmm. and um, and then states in parentheses, honestly, I'm not sure how they were ever friends. Right, which they were. I mean, right. they were really good friends. He and was they seem to put me in the middle. Whenever says somebody says they seem to put me in the middle... I always look at the person in the middle and I'm like, move. Yes. Yeah, yeah, because she is, she's really stuck in the middle here. Yeah. She has put herself right in between them. Yeah. And he has been very helpful. Maybe Steve is being helpful to her because she's more open and receptive to him, whereas there's obviously, you know, underlying feelings and like this weird contention between husband and Steve. Maybe she needs to step back hmm. and do some dialectical behavioral therapy, some tapping, hmm. some maybe an active yoga practice. Maybe I'm biased. A yoga practice, something that's going to get those endorphins At least going. touch your toes. Touch your toes. Get those endorphins running. Stretch out the hamstrings. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something, something to help with the depression and worry about all that and the kids. And not about Steve and the husband. Yeah, and I think for her, it's gonna. Obviously, my temptation is for her to like to say, "You should sit down with your husband and find out like why he's sad about Steve and why he's upset and why he's jealous." And you should talk to Steve and say, "When did your friendship with your my husband change?" But like, obviously, like you cannot adjudicate their friendship. Good like, word. You have you have already been the medium through which they have channeled a lot of emotions. Um, And I don't think that it's going to be helpful for you to try to mediate further. But, you know, it sounds like you kind of had a conversation because it doesn't sound like your husband's as jealous as the time you spend with Steve anymore. So you've sort of said something to him that's made it clear, like, please stop saying bitchy things to Steve. And you haven't had a conversation with Steve where you say, hey, I know you and my husband used to be really close. I know you're not now. I don't want to get involved in your guys' dynamic, but I want you to know that it's painful for me when you make fun of my husband and my kids in front of me Mm -hmm. because I know that you really care about me. Like, you've shown up for me when I've needed you. Mm -hmm. You were there when I was sick. I've seen you around my child. I know that you love us. So it's really hurtful and confusing for me, and I would like to ask you as a friend to knock it off. And then, like, if Steve and your husband are ever able to have some conversations about what happened between them, that would be great. But... That's not something you can fix. I, mm-hmm. I do think this is viable. I think Steve's a person who really cares about you. I think the real issue is between Steve and your husband. And the less you kind of spend trying to get the two of them to like each other again or put the two of them in situations where they have to interact with you and each other and they kind of are vying for your attention. It's this weird kind of almost love triangle. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that you should probably refrain from from moving in that direction. Um, I just got a visual of wife buying one of those seized candy boxes, taking out the key that tells you which chocolate is which, mm-hmm. putting it in between Steve and husband, and saying, you guys work it out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take the kids on a, we're going to go to the park for three hours. 
you know, and let the seize candy box be a conversation piece to work out their past resentments and aggression. That kind of sounds amazing. Okay. I like that. I think we should close on that visual. We have fixed this problem. Okay. All right. Uh, this one is called Venmo etiquette. Mm. This is exciting. Dear Prudence, this is also great because it's one of those things that like this goes from like, ah, two of the people I'm closest with don't like each other. How do I solve this complex equation? And this one's just straight up. My friend charged me two dollars and I really appreciate being able to go from one to the other. So with that said, yeah, one is deep and emotional and the other one's petty. I yep, like and I love petty. I do. I do. I need a, a weekly dose of petty or otherwise I would wither and die. So we should hang out more often. then. <laughs> Dear Prudence. A few weeks ago, a friend texted to say he was roasting a chicken for dinner and invited a few of us over to share it. I accepted the invitation, brought a six-pack of beer, and we all had a lovely evening. The next day, he charged me $2 on Venmo. Is this not a little absurd? I get that it costs a lot to feed people for dinner, but I've had people over for meals before, ask them to pick up something like salad ingredients or a bottle of wine, and I never thought to charge my guests for their share. I figure it all evens out eventually. It's nice to share a meal together. I don't care about giving him this money now, but I don't want to set a precedent for future meals that I don't really agree to. For what it's worth, he charged another friend who didn't bring anything to the meal $4, which seems totally arbitrary. Am I missing something? I love this guy. Oh, man. I, no, not the one who wrote it. I love the friend that No, charged. I know. I love I love picturing him at home with one of those old-timey, like, green visors and, like, with a golf pencil, just like, all right, Sarah ate... And an abacus. Yeah, yeah, Sarah ate more of the leg than everyone else, so I'm going to charge her five. And, wow. like, Carl used a lot of toilet paper. Did he roast so. it or he'd get it at Costco? It says that he was roasting a chicken for dinner. Oh. So I think this might have been like a homemade roast chicken, which is still not that expensive. A roasting chicken is way cheaper than like chicken breast. Is it hormone-free, free range? I should write them back and ask. I don't know. Because that would make a difference. That might make me want to charge people. If I was having people over, I would definitely give them hormones and caged, and then I wouldn't worry about charging them. I mean, I think the understanding, right, when you get a casual invitation from a friend for dinner— is not that they are knocking themselves out to put together this elaborate, expensive feast. The understanding generally with a casual get-together is, hey, I was making some dinner and I'd love to share it with someone. Right. I mean, he obviously had this preconceived notion in his head that uh, this meal was... Like, he should have just charged a cover, actually, when people came in the door. Sure, yeah, or let him know. Or passed around a donation basket. Yeah, let him. I, I think it seems clear that this person sort of feels like if they had said something up front, I might not feel so miffed. Yeah. But there's something about getting it after the fact and having it be for such a small amount as $2 that feels just like, are we really going to keep track of all the little favors that we do for each other as yeah. friends? Because if so, like, last week you took a couple sips of my latte, so I would like the 75 cents that you drank. You know, this seems to be a reoccurring theme. Yeah. And I get it. Times are tough out there. Like, we're all hustling. We're all cobbling together three and four and five and six side gigs if we're not lucky enough to have a full-time job. It's true. But then you could have sent a request ahead of time. Yeah. So I might have a verbal conversation with this friend (sighs) and ask them, what's the deal? I'm a little offended and slightly upset. I don't understand if you had sent something to me ahead of time. You know, I could have given you some dollars, Mm -hmm. but in my book, I would not have a dinner party, invite people over, and then charge them where it's your frame of mind about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's probably what's going to be called for, and it sounds like they would really rather not, which I get. 
because this started with a sort of bewildering electronic communication rather yeah. than a call saying, hey, could you give me $2? But that's kind of what this whole electronic setup enables. Right. Right. For people not to communicate. And so you can say something that you would feel really uncomfortable speaking out loud with your mouth because you can just send it and not right. have to watch someone's reaction. They could communicate by snail mail just to kind of like take it back even more. Like they don't write them a check. Yeah, don't respond to the Venmo request. Write them a letter, send it in the mail, ask them to write back. What do you think? I think I almost spit out my water at the idea of, of starting a, a correspondence over this. Because I feel like pretty soon the cost of stamps is going to get you both up to $2. It's true. But if you want it to be equally as petty mm. and kind of make a point. Oh, I think that's going to that's gonna destroy a friendship. Okay. If you both start getting Venmo level petty over 2 bucks, like, you don't want to lose this friendship over $2. But I also understand your desire not to set a precedent. So I think... Next time you see him or give him a call, say, hey, I was a little surprised and offended. Maybe don't use the word offended because it's a little soon for offended. But, yeah, just, I was a little surprised and taken aback. Taken aback is a good one. Yeah, taken aback. Um, that you charged me for dinner. Uh, I had thought this was an informal get-together. I brought beer. I, I, I don't want to think of us as, like, periodically charging each other. Um, can you kind of tell me what your thoughts are? Yeah. And then, you know, give them $2. Physically give them $2. Don't do not do the Venmo thing. Just, like, hand them $2 so that they have to actually stand there and accept money from you and deal with the consequences of their actions. And then just say, like, hey, in the future, if you want to charge for a dinner party, I'd really rather know beforehand because it's just, you know, I'm not operating on that assumption most of the time. Thank God you're dear prudence and not me. I feel like it'd be like the emotional Donald Trump and I'd start, like, you could never waging wars again, you know, between people. Because I think the letter writing is a great tactic. I, I love it, but I also feel like you're going to run out of friends really fast. Um, and I don't want that for this person, especially if they have friends who regularly roast chickens. Like That's I want them so loving of you. <laughs> Any anytime. Just admiration for you. Well, um, speaking of admiration, here's a terrible segue. Let's read the next letter. All right, go for it. Cool. All right. So the subject of this one is love his daughter, him not so much. This is another one of those letters, by the way, where I went back and forth a couple of times. I don't usually think letters might be fake, but this one sounds almost like the plot of a movie to me. So if anyone listens to this and they're like, yes, it's definitely a movie. I saw the movie. Here's the name. Give me a call. Let me know. But I'm going to go ahead and, and operate on the assumption that this could be true because things happen, you guys. Things happen in this weird and wonderful world of ours, and they are confusing and bonkers, and they don't make any sense. And this might be one of them. Okay, let's hear it. Dear Prudence. A year ago, I got involved with the volunteer literacy organization. I became friends with a volunteer, a teenage girl named Laura, who is being raised by a single dad. Her mom is totally out of the picture, and her dad's a high-level executive who is leaving his daughter to pretty much raise herself. I became very close to Laura, and she wanted me to meet her father. I did, and largely because Laura seemed to want it, we started dating after a fashion. He has now proposed. He has made it clear that this is what Laura wanted, not him. He does not want a relationship. He wants somebody to be there for Laura. I'm torn. I really love Laura and would like to be a part of her life, and she needs somebody. Marrying her father would let me be that person. However, I'm not in love with her father. He's a cold, distant person who is interested only in business. Do you think the happiness of a child is worth a marriage and name only? Okay, this is definitely a Bronte novel. What? I mean, I don't... There's not a Bronte no novel that comes to mind, but this definitely happened to someone that the Brontes wrote about. <laughs> I just, I didn't think things like that still happened. Like, I am a businessman. My daughter requires a mother. Please fill that role. I do not love you. Wow. 
This also would be a great start to a romance novel where, like, okay, I'll do it for Laura, but then you guys, like, realize you have all this tension and, like, you fall for each other. Yeah, like Annie. Yeah. 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 I didn't mean to get so excited about that. (laughs) But, like, this could be a setup to something really beautiful. But it's probably not. I mean, come on. She could easily just become the young girl's, you know, quote-unquote mentor. Yeah, you don't need to marry her dad. Or become auntie so-and-so. Yeah. I mean, is she even getting laid out of this? He's cold and distant. So if if so, it's like getting laid by a glacier. It's just... Yeah. I mean, if someone was going down on me, I might consider it. She does not specify in the letter the degree to which she is being going down upon. If I was getting some sort of physical stimulation and or bank account stimulation... But he probably would have a wicked prenup. Oh, God. Can you imagine? Yeah. Yeah. No, it would not be. No, I mean, I think you know that you're not going to marry this guy. Your letter does not sound like someone who is convinced that she's going to do it. You sound more like you want a sounding board because this is really bizarre. And it is. But no, there are ways to stay in this young person's life that don't involve marrying her father. She's already a teenager. She's done a lot of her growing up. It's not like she needs someone at home to, like, help her get ready for school. Um, Yeah. And uh, you already know you would be miserable. Right. I mean, she can just be a, you know, female figure in her life that offers advice and love and weekends away from dad. And yeah, let me show you how to use a tampon. Here's how you put a condom on a banana. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be great for Laura to spend, you know, less time with her father, it sounds like, if he's in the habit of just proposing at people his daughter meets because he doesn't feel like raising her. Right. Um, That sounds like an ineffective strategy. And I feel bad for the next person who actually says yes Mm -hmm. and gets sort of trapped. Mm -hmm. But yeah, don't marry him. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. I wonder if you can introduce one um, person to another, people that write questions, because I would like this father to meet the um, death-obsessed in-laws. Oh, they would have amazing conversations. He would not like them. I know. And I, I would know. like to see that. But he might have a lawyer for the father <gasps> that wants to write the will for the son. Oh, my God. Yes. You know, if you could do some matchmaking like that. Oh, I really wish I could. Oh, I just don't know how to get in touch with the person from Reddit because they didn't write to me. Oh, that's true. I also wish very much that I could have been there for the proposal when he had just said, obviously, you and I don't care for one another, but my daughter seems to have taken to you. And therefore, I find you acceptable as a wife. I am willing to marry you and move you into one of my And she didn't homes. say what the ring looked like because that might have been a deciding factor. Oh, for I bet me. there wasn't a ring. I bet there was no ring. I bet he's one of those stingy rich guys who says, you know, I would take care of you, of course, but like, didn't here's actually a twisty get a tie. Ring. Yeah, I mean, he would Symbolic. get. He would have like a wedding ring for when you go down to the courthouse, but he's not gonna. This guy didn't get to where he is by like giving away jewelry willy nilly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, he's careful. He's Next. more careful than that. Uh, I think my last thought about that is the question at the end: Do you think the happiness of a child is worth a marriage in name only? Because we get a lot of questions that are sort of based around. What should I do for the happiness of my children? And am I obligated to do this to keep a child happy? And let's all take a minute to remember, there's a lot of ways to be happy. You you know, this kid could be perfectly happy without you marrying her dad. That is a false choice if you think, I can either make her happy and marry her father or make her miserable and not marry her father. You could also just keep volunteering together and spend time with her and take her to the movies and, like, have conversations about dating and college. Mm -hmm. Um, And none of those would involve marrying her dad. 
Yeah. I I've, mean, and plus she's she's a teenager. Yeah. She might not be in the mood for it that day. Right. I've 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 made a lot of people happy and I've never married their dads. So <laughs> that alone tells me that you can make people happy without marrying their fathers. God forbid. That should have to be a qualification. Can you imagine if you had to marry someone's dad every time you wanted to spend time together? Oh Just like, God. ugh, I've got so many dads on my string. Well, you'd have a divorce lawyer on speed dial. I, I'm assuming that in this society, this is just one where, like, people marry dads a lot. Like, everyone's got, like, four or five dads on rotation. It's just like, who's... Whose dad are you married to right now? Or we'd just be a polygamous society. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of dads, we've got one more letter, and it's about a very particular type of dad. All right, let's hear them. Let's do it. All right. This one is just called Why No Husband. Yes. Dear Prudence, my husband drinks wine every single day. If it's a work night and we don't have guests, he'll drink on average three glasses of wine. If there's no work the next day and we don't have guests, he'll drink about six glasses. But if we have another person in the mix, like his mom, also a big drinker, or a friend, or worse yet, a party, he'll drink until he's slurring and stumbling. Last Thursday, over the course of a family meal with his mother, he drank until he was violently ill on our back lawn. Mm. This excessive drinking has been going on for eight years, ever since he had a serious health crisis that almost killed him. I love him very much, but I feel like a nervous and controlling wreck. After big episodes like last Thursday, I feel chemically depressed for days, as well as angry and repulsed. We have three kids, two in high school and one in grade school. They have grown up surrounded by non-mindful drinking. I know I can't change my husband's behavior. I feel he needs to quit entirely because he's had eight years to figure out how to control his drinking. He insists that wine is one of the greatest pleasures in his life. Is it reasonable for me to insist he be accountable to a third party, like a counselor or a support group, if he insists on continuing to drink? And if I have a glass of wine at dinner with him, am I an enabler? <clears throat> I thought you might appreciate this one. I do appreciate this one. I really do. Um, I mean, yet again, what comes to mind is the person that's writing the letter. Right. Because when it comes to chemical substances, mind-altering and the like, you know, you just can't do anything for other people and about what other people are doing around them. So my... I guess first line of business would be to how can this wife, we're talking about a wife, our mm -hmm. husband, yep. wife? Yep, she's a wife. Um, yeah, how can she take care of herself better rather than worry about what he's doing? Yeah, because it sounds like right now what she's doing a lot is having dinner with him, watching him, counting how much drink, how many drinks he's having, yeah. and worrying about when he's going to cross the line from relaxed to yeah. slurring. Like she has up. a little notebook that, it's probably similar to one my mom uses to count points when she's playing Scrabble. Yeah. And she's counting the number of drinks, what kind of encounter it is. Yep. I mean, to know that pretty precisely, it sounds like she knows that pretty precisely, like yeah. what's going to happen when. Yeah, she knows his baseline. He's always going to have three. Here's what happens when he has six. Here's what happens on those other nights. Like, she knows his habits. Yeah. And that's almost paralleling. It seems to me the obsession that he's having with the drink. Yeah. So, um, yeah, how can she take care of herself? What sort of support group can she uh, investigate and, uh, and attend for herself? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the things that she's suggesting to him would actually be great for her. Yeah. So she says she'd like to have him see a counselor or a support group. I think, I think she should get a counselor. And find a support group. I know. And not to say that 
you know, that, I mean, by me saying that, I am not, like, condoning his behavior by any means. Right. No, I don't think that that's what you were doing. No, but definitely, you know, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a, usually a family problem. And so taking care of oneself is the best thing because you really can't control what another person does. Right. You know, right. I mean, you could ask them, like, please, well, after you finish brushing your teeth, do not bang the side of your toothbrush against the sink three times every time you brush your teeth because mm-hmm. it really gets on my nerves. You can suggest to somebody not to do that. Yeah. But, and you can tell that's something for me that was an issue. But <laughs> it um, did sound like a pretty specific idea. Very specific yep. annoyance and pet peeve of mine. Mm hmm. But whether they're going to do it or not, I mean, you have to prepare yourself for the fact that they're going to listen to you, but not necessarily follow through with what you're asking. It's also interesting to me that she says it's not that her husband said, I don't have a problem. He said, wine's the greatest pleasure in my life, which I can totally see. Like, it is something that makes him pretty regularly uh, slurring, stumbling, (laughs) puking on the back lawn. Yeah, that sounds so amazing. But he feels like... This is the one thing I have. And if I let go of this, I'll have to think about that health crisis. I'll have to deal with my life and the things I haven't done because I've been kind of drinking myself into a low key or moderate stupor on a nightly basis for a long time. And I can see that affecting the wife as well. Like, oh, wow. So do I qualify? Do I I make that top three? Like, this is obviously more important to you than me. And not having like addressing those questions, you definitely want, you know, other people in the mix to help you. Yeah. Yeah, because I think one of the questions you'll you'll need to ask yourself, what if the next eight years are like this? Right. Do you want to be around for that? Yeah. Do you want to live like that? And if so, do you want to live with him counting his drinks every night? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to have a time and a space that you can retreat to and say, if he's going to choose to do this, I'm going to go do something else. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you only you can answer that. Like, maybe you do feel like it's worth staying with him, but that you would like to have plans in the evening that aren't just making dinner and then watching him drink too much. Mm-hmm. Like, you might need to find that you need to create a separate social life for yourself sometimes. Or you may feel like, I actually can't do another eight years like this, especially with kids. And I need to make it clear that he can either, uh, you know, quit drinking and, and, and be a family with us or like choose to continue to drink the way he's doing and we can be friendly co-parents, but mm-hmm. but not partners. Because um, I don't think, it does not sound like he has his drinking under control. He does not sound like a relaxed, happy, moderate drinker uh, who's got a good grasp on on how to drink responsibly. No. Um, it sounds like he is moving in a direction where she has to do a lot of caretaking and a lot of managing um, and a lot of cleaning up. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I could answer that of how I would really answer it, if I were Dear Prudence. Oh, yeah. Hit it. I would say save all of the bottles mm. that he's been drinking and take up, like, go to the shooting range. Get yourself a gun and start lining them up in the fence in the backyard and just practicing your shooting every day and shooting the wine bottles. You could even go as far to, like, print out, you know, and photocopy pictures of his face and glue them to the bottles. These are the most creative suggestions that we have ever had on the podcast. I just need to tell you. Really? Yes. Oh, thank you. Bless you. Yeah, because, I mean, I think I've always wanted to, like, and I will, this is on my bucket list, to go to the shooting range. I did learn how to shoot a twenty two when I was in 4-H. Okay. 
But I, taking it to the next level, like maybe even getting like a sharpshooter, like putting the wine bottles really far away, like turn your husband's alcoholism into, you know, you becoming a stellar markswoman. Maybe you even get like, you know, some headhunter finds you and you get some job to work, you know, in, in, um, what is that called when you're a, um, skeet shooter? No, 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 no. When you're a uh, paid mercenary. A oh, paid wow. Mercenary. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a whole yeah, new take life. take you traveling around the world. Oh, my God. And your husband's still your husband, but you get to travel yeah. and shoot people for money. I don't want to go so far as to recommend that you become a paid mercenary, although that mental image is kind of amazing. But I do absolutely think that you need to start figuring out what do you want to do that's not just reacting to your husband's drinking. And that's kind of a great <sighs> so illustration. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You need to figure out what would I do with my life if every night my husband wasn't getting sloshed. Right. Um, and I think, you know, your question of if I have a glass of wine at dinner with him, am I an enabler? You know, I don't think that everyone needs to stop drinking just because some people have drinking problems. Mm -hmm. But you might want to ask yourself, do I want to drink with him? Right. Like, is that the kind of environment I want to be in where I feel like I'm either trying to catch up with him or the only way we can connect is if I get like within distance of how tipsy or drunk he is? Mm -hmm. um, like, do I want that? Like, you might rather go out with friends and have a drink or two drinks at a bar with people you enjoy being around mm -hmm. who can drink like not, you know, necessarily like perfectly, but not on a daily basis like mm -hmm. this, like. You can. It's not your fault that your husband drinks too much. If you drink or don't drink at dinner, that's not going to, like, change his behavior. But, yeah, like, ask yourself, do you want? Do you want to just start catching catching up to his pace? Yeah. I don't think that that's going to be a good future for you. Yeah. And I would say you mentioned, like, are the next eight years going to be like that? I mean, I would even look at the next six months. Mm. You know, let this be, you know— Asking for help and writing a letter is a great start. Yeah. Yeah. She know? says she feels chemically depressed for days after stuff like that. She feels angry and repulsed. Yeah. That's those are intense, mm -hmm. intense emotions. And right it doesn't there. sound like this is a rare occasion. It yeah. doesn't sound like she was saying this has never happened or this only happens once every couple of years. It sounds like this is happening a lot when his mom comes over. Yeah. And I'm guessing he likes to spend time with his mom because she likes to drink like he does. Huh. Um. Yeah, there's some binge drinking happening, and she yep. can kind of predict when that's going to happen. Yep. I think that the important thing for you is to do a little separating, um, both emotionally from what he chooses to do when he drinks, uh, as well as just like physically, like you don't have to sit and watch him get drunk every night and then kind of figure out, is that enough for me? Do I want to leave this marriage? Do I mm -hmm. want to deliver an ultimatum? Am I prepared to deliver an ultimatum? Mm -hmm. And do I have the support I would need to leave him if ultimately that's what I decide to do? Mm -hmm. um, I would say support first and foremost, yeah. as well as taking, um, you know, taking lessons in rifle shooting. Taking lessons in rifle shooting. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I, I feel a lot for this letter writer. Yeah. I feel a lot for her kids. I feel a lot for her husband. Um, who I imagine feels a, a great deal of ambivalence about drinking if it's both the greatest pleasure and something that causes his, his, you know, himself to like fall down and throw up in their backyard, like with increasing regularity. Painful to watch. Yep. It's hard to love something that hurts you like that. Yeah. Woo. Well, and on that note, Rebecca, we have fixed everyone's problems. 
This has been so cathartic for me. I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, we've sent people on death field trips. Uh, we've turned them into highly paid mercenaries. We have talked them out of horrible, you know, formal marriages to men who don't care about them. You did it. Thank you. What a sense of accomplishment. Yep. I feel like I can go buy my sesame tofu salad now. I think you can, too. I think you've earned it. And I hope that you just just revel in it. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the people that wrote in. Yeah. And uh, and the trust. And I hope, you know, that um, that things go well for everyone that wrote in. Thank yeah. you for inviting me, Mallory. Of course. What a pleasure. Absolutely. We'll have to have you back. Rebecca, thank you so much. In keeping with the theme of the last couple of episodes, which has just apparently been Mallory describes movie trailers she's seen while watching other movies, um, I want to talk about how excited I am about the Tom Hanks as Sully Sullenberger trailer. By which I mean, I'm just really excited to watch the trailer. I don't know that I need to see the movie. I feel like it's definitely more of a trailer-length story because, you know, the premise of the movie is just something bad didn't happen. Isn't that great? And I love watching Tom Hanks, you know, going through something bad almost happening. And I love that he's really leaning heavily into the, like, America's dad look and that he's just, you know, always concerned and trying to do the right thing. But what's great about the trailer is the entire conflict is, what if something worse had happened? Which it didn't. Like, everyone agrees and remembers that it was really good. And he did a really good job landing the plane in the Hudson. And it was a total accident. Nobody's fault. Geese flew into the engines. And everyone lived and was healthy. But so the whole trailer is just, like, people asking Tom Hanks as he has this really worried-looking mustache. Just like, but what if everyone had died? And you know that everyone did not die, which really lowers the stakes. And it kind of puts me in mind of how when the Hobbit trailers all came out, it was sort of anticlimactic because everyone was sort of being asked the question, remember this world you really liked? What if we revisited it, but with much lower stakes? Um, which was the real prob- problem with the Hobbit movie. Um, it was just like, remember the big adventure you had? Here's a smaller one stretched out further. And then it's the same thing with Sully, where it's just like, remember that guy who didn't crash a plane? What if he had crashed it? And I love that. It makes me very happy. I wish more movies were about a conflict that never occurred and are just nice people interrogating their own motives because they want to make sure that they're really being nice uh, and and, and not just tricking themselves. And I, I want more movies like that where just good people obsessively ask themselves, did I really do the right thing? And then conclude, yes. Yes, I did. Um, more movies like that, please. Uh, send them my way. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Reviews extend your lifespan and help new listeners find the podcast, which means more questions and more advice. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. I'd love to answer your question. Call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you may hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it to 30 seconds, a minute tops, and send it to me at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. Prudence.